We're going to talk a little bit about, um, I don't need that yet. I want to start by saying in the natural, in our natural human lives here on earth, we all have priorities, whether we realize we have priorities or not. And evidence of that is take a newborn baby. Marcus can attest to this. Um, if Dahlia had a dirty diaper, what would she do? No, not what would you do. What would she do? Ah, right. She would cry, right? If she was hungry, what would she do? If she was overtired, what would she do? There you go. So she wasn't even aware of what she was doing, but she was responding to what was going on inside of her. And that became a priority for her to get what was going on inside taken care of. And the only way she had to communicate that to her parents, whose priority at that time was taking care of this helpless child, was for her to cry. And then mom and dad knew exactly how to respond. Amen? For all of us, excuse me, our priorities change as life goes on. And I'm sure that Marcus can say praise God to this one, that eventually Dahlia will have words to say, hey, dad. I need this or I need that, right? She won't just start wailing and he has to figure it out. Um, so as we grow, our, our priorities shift. They change. Um, when we were kids, maybe, you know, old enough to go out and play on our own, um, our priority was let's have fun. Let's run. Let's scream. Let's play because we just wanted to enjoy ourselves. When we got a little bit older and we were, we were in school, our priorities could have been anything from making a sports team to asking that girl out or to um, passing a class and graduating from high school. Then our priorities shifted, whether we got a job or got a job and went to college or just went to college. Priorities are always shifting and changing, aren't they? When we first got married, and we had all these kids to take care of. Dave's priority was to go to work every day to provide for our family. My priority was to stay home and make sure nobody burned the house down. Right? So, but thankfully, we're in a new phase of our lives. It's really good. And, yes, and our priority is more taking care of each other. Um, growing in God, being a blessing to our church, and and we have the freedom now in retirement to, if he asks us to do something, we're, we have that freedom and we can do it. Amen? But as Christians, we have, from the moment we're born again to the moment we leave this earth and go to heaven, we have been given in the Bible one priority. One thing that needs to be number one, First place in our lives. And we can find that in Matthew 6.33. And I'm going to be reading out of the Amplified. Excuse me. But first and most importantly. Those words should give you a clue right there. This is the priority for us as believers. But first and most importantly, seek, aim at, bless you, strive after his kingdom and his righteousness. His way of doing and being right, the attitude and character of God. Because that's what we're supposed to be reflecting in the earth to other people. And you know what's awesome? 
It's not up to us to make that happen. We just have to be available to the Lord and allow him to work through us. Amen? But if we're doing all that, and if we're seeking him first and his kingdom first, the end of the verse gives us the promise. And all these things will be given to you also. I'm sorry, Renee, I didn't mean to mess you up with the camera. Okay. I just needed this. Now, what happens to this priority of seeking first the kingdom of God when we become sidetracked? Or am I the only one who has experienced losing focus on God when the cares of this life loom so large in front of me that it's all I can see in the natural? Am I alone in that, or have you guys experienced that? Unfortunately, it's, it's all too easy to lose focus on God, right? I mean, have you ever been in a meeting where you're hearing preaching, you're getting so pumped up, and you're like, Yes, Lord, I will do anything you want me to do. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Use me. Here I am. And then as you're driving home from church, you're getting really angry at the people who are pulling out in front of you. And by the time you get home, right, we got distracted. And it's easy to be distracted. Excuse me. Because we have an enemy who is the master of distraction. And he wants us to think about and focus on anything, anything other than God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Excuse me. Father, help us to look into your word today and clearly see what, your, what our priorities need to be. And what happens when we're focusing on the wrong things. It is our heart's desire to live in a manner worthy of you and complete the race you have set before us. Give us the grace to humbly acknowledge where we have missed it. And we purpose to change with your help and anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. So not too long ago, I'm thinking several months, but I'm not sure how long ago I first stumbled upon this. Um, my, my, here's my confession. Um, a lot of times I'll go to YouTube and I'm just kind of scrolling and thinking, hmm, what do I want to hear? What do I want to listen to? And I happened upon a video that um, ended up being, I, I didn't know until I watched it, it was a panel discussion with some pretty notable Christian women. Okay. And so I wanted to hear what they had to say. And um, these women were talking about the subject of idolatry. We don't talk about idolatry too much in the church, but this struck such a chord with me that it hasn't left me. And so that's what I felt impressed to share with you today. Um, but one of the women on this panel defined what an idol is. Because, you know, when they're, when they began the conversation is, okay, what is an idol? And she said, an idol is something you give your strength to or you draw your strength from other than God. She talked about something that happened to her when she was 15 years old. And she had come home from school and her dad was there, uh, when she got home. And in her words, he was scary. It sounded to me as she was describing him that he was overbearing and very stern. And I I almost wonder if he had a military background. He was just 
very gruff. And literally, when she came in, he said to her, how much do you weigh? So, and so naturally, that put her on the defensive. And she had said, well, when I went to camp this summer, this is how much I weighed. He said, well, you don't weigh that much anymore. Go in there and weigh yourself and come back and tell me what you weigh. So right away, that shame is building in her. And it's because of what he was saying. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe he was just trying to help her. I don't know. But um, he, what he said had lasting effect in her life. So she did, and she came back, and she told him, and he said, you know, guys are not going to like you. You're not going to have dates. You need to deal with this. That's pretty harsh. And from that moment on, she obsessed over her weight. She thought if she was thin, and now I'm using her words now, if she was thin, she was worthy of love. If she was thin, she was in control. If she was thin, she would be successful. Years later, after she got saved, and I think she said she got saved when she was 20 or 21. Years later, after she got saved, the Lord showed her that her weight had become an idol in her life. She had been giving her strength to trying to overcome it. And only at times when she was able to lose some weight did she feel strong and competent. Now, we're not focusing on weight per se. I use that story to illustrate that it can be anything that becomes an idol in our lives. But we are going to talk about recognizing those things in our lives that we have given place to rather than the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're talking about misplaced trust in anything other than the Lord. One of the ladies on the panel said, it's idolatry to think I am the one who keeps myself free. I can't do that. Jesus is the one who keeps me free. When I surrender to him and say, you're the one who made me, I'm only going to find my strength in you. Whatever that thing is for each of us, and it can be almost anything, insecurities, past trauma, career, possessions, perfectionism, position, money, whether it's wanting too much or not having enough, it doesn't matter, relationships, grief, even offense. Anything we place above God pulls our focus away from him. We can give it so much attention that it becomes the filter through which we see everything in our individual worlds. Or worse, it can become so big in our consciousness that we have difficulty seeing past it. We've all heard that expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. If our focus is so consumed with a fault or a failure, how can we see beyond it to find our way out of it? It becomes the fulcrum, which is the essential center or the pivot point in our lives. Everything else hinges on that. But isn't that the place that God is supposed to hold for us? Isn't he supposed to be our everything? The lens through which we see people and circumstances in the world? It seems that we cannot overcome what we don't identify. 
And based on our previous definition of an idol, something we give our strength to or draw our strength from, it's clear that anything that holds our focus, attention, affection, self-esteem, or strength, other than knowing and loving God, could be an idol in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it'd be awfully convenient if uh, something that's about to draw our attention away from Jesus would come with a disclaimer. Caution, meditating on this will cause your perspective to become skewed and lead you down a never-ending trail of frustration, misery, and shame. I think we might consider stepping away from it if that were the case. But things don't become an idol instantly. It happens over time without our even realizing it. Let's look at something that God instituted for the children of Israel to help them in distress. It was a good thing, but ultimately it became an idol to them. So we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 19. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And I'm starting in verse 3, chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 3. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. Now, Moses has already led the children of Israel out into the, de- into the desert, into the wilderness. And uh, he climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called him, called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that beautiful? That is so tender and so loving. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And then after Moses relayed what God was saying to the people in verse 8, and all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. If only that's the way it had worked out. Amen? Now, in, in chapter 20, um, while Moses and God are communicating together, And God starts in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Then this is where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And he said, you shall not make for yourself a carved, oh, let me start with verse 3. You must not have any other God before me. Then in verse 4 it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Let's look at the beginning of verse 4 again. You shall not make for yourselves any idol. We're the ones who construct idols that separate us from God. When Moses led the children of Israel out into the wilderness, it didn't take them long to begin to complain against God. Uh, no, in uh, Numbers 21, in Numbers 21, 
uh, he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many died. So it says, okay, I'm going there. Then the people went to Moses, confessed their sin. They said, uh, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes, this is verse 6, among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And in uh, verses 8 and 9 of Numbers 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent, if a serpent excuse me, had bitten anyone, then when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Much later, not that far, much later in Numbers, okay, uh, excuse me, in Second Kings, eight, um, chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, Hezekiah has become king, and, or excuse me, king of Judah, and the word tells us that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and this is what I want you to see, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it became an idol to them. God did not ask Moses to make a replica of a snake in order for it to become an idol. He gave the people a point of contact, a point on which to focus and remember God's provision to receive their healing if they were bitten by fiery serpents. But over time, rather than look at the image of the serpent on the pole as God's care for them, they looked at the serpent as the source of their relief rather than God. And it became an idol for them, as if it alone contained the power to heal the people. So even though God commanded Moses to make the serpent on the pole years later, Hezekiah did the right thing by destroying it because of what it had become for the people. Identifying idols in our own lives can be a little more difficult Because most of us aren't burning incense to our idols or praying to them. But we are giving our focus and attention. Uh, Another one of the women on the panel and her husband, she talked about this, were dealing with some issues. I don't know if they were personal issues or ministry issues. I don't know. But she said um, that they met with some ministry friends to talk. And she said it ended up being a conversation filled with speculation and excuses. Those were my words, not hers, but she did say excuses. Afterward, when she and her husband got in their car to return home, she turned to her husband, and I'm reading this because it's a quote. She said, either Jesus did it or he didn't. Either it's finished or it's not. Either Jesus has completed it all or there's something I still have to do to try to finish the work on the cross. Either his blood paid it all or his sacrifice was completely in vain. We need to come to a point where we realize that. 
She went on to say, we can set up idols. We can set up strongholds. We can set up excuses that keep us in bondage. And we can actually lend them power in our minds. But when we believe that some stronghold or idol has power over us, that is blatant idol worship. Because Jesus on the cross takes away every excuse. There's nothing left for Jesus to do. He's done it all. He's ruling and reigning and he has all authority and he has given it to us. And he says, now go and I'll go with you. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, is all about foolishness of people who make for themselves idols. And let's look. We're not going to read all of the uh, verses. But. All right. Let's look at starting in verse 18, because. Literally, if you read 9 through 17, number 18 starts to sum up everything. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect why it's, it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? But I love how God responds to this in verses, oh, excuse me, I wanted to go back to this. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that God, that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded people's minds. We don't even see when we've constructed idols, but God sees. And he wants uh, to set us free from anything that keeps us bound. We can see God's response now to the foolishness of building idols in the next two verses. So Isaiah 44, starting in verse 21. Pay attention, O Jacob. For you are my servant, O Israel. I, the Lord, made you, and I will not forget you. I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. O return for me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Can't you hear the heart of God in this? I love that. Please understand that I'm not suggesting that we get in a ditch about searching endlessly and everywhere for idols, especially in others, especially in others. We are not the Holy Ghost police force. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the dangers of judging others. If we judge, then we will be judged. And we were reminded that mercy triumphs over judgment. But we can go to the Father who loves us so far beyond our ability to comprehend And ask him if there are idols in our lives. I can ask him if there are idols in mine. But it's not my place or business to ask him if there are idols in Dave's life. Or in Renee's life. Or in Ruby's life. That's between each individual and their Heavenly Father. Remember that 1 John 3, 20-21 tells us, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Don't make the assumption that there's an idol in your life, but be aware that if you go to God, he's, he knows everything anyway. So he'll show us. But if there isn't, if your heart doesn't condemn you, then go on, praise God, and do your thing. We're not hiding anything from God. He knows all things. He is just waiting for us to turn our eyes on him so he can show us the way out of what has held us captive. It wasn't until I started hearing this stuff that I'm sharing with you today that I realized I had constructed an idol in my own life. I love God. I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 13, but I always had one area of my life that consumed my thoughts. I tried so many ways to overcome this stronghold, but it had woven itself so deeply into my identity that I didn't know how to be free. I felt shame all the time. I assumed people were judging me. I had a sense of humor and I could be funny, so I learned that if I could make people laugh, maybe they wouldn't hurt, wouldn't hate me. I didn't feel worthy of love. So for the first time, I heard this, or excuse me, so I heard this woman talk about her experience and it nearly took my breath away because one thing the enemy wants to do is keep us isolated as well. He doesn't want us to know that the things that we go through, other people go through too. I was a child in the 60s and 70s and I remember a product that was introduced that um, became, well, kind of funny. Uh, This product, uh, people began using it in their pools. It was a chemical that was put into the water that would turn a vibrant color if any swimmer happened to pee in the pool. I don't know if any of you ever experienced that, if you are my age or somewhere around that, that exists. And there was no escaping the shame when others in the pool saw that water light up, right? Identifying You know, warning, warning, somebody just peed in the pool. Now, this is going to seem like an unusual comparison, but that's what happens when the light of the Holy Spirit shines a light on those things that displease the Father. He illuminated an area of darkness in my soul, an idol, and I recognized that for decades I had been giving my strength to it and trying in the natural to change it. But idols cannot simply be changed. They need to be smashed, obliterated, and crushed. The Lord took me to another passage in Isaiah where I saw myself and I found hope. So let's look at Isaiah 26. And I just love this passage. Uh, I'm going to read it first in the um, Amplified. Isaiah 26, starting in verse 12. Lord, you will ordain peace, God's favor and blessings, both temporal and spiritual for us. For you have also wrought in us and for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled over us, and we will acknowledge and mention your name only. They, the former tyrant masters, are dead. They shall not live and reappear. 
They are powerless ghosts. They shall not rise and come back. Therefore, you have visited and made an end of them and caused every memory of them, every trace of their supremacy to perish. And it's a little more straightforward in the New New Living Translation. Lord, you will grant peace. All we have accomplished is really from you. O Lord, our God, others have ruled us, but you alone are the one we worship. Those we served before are dead and gone. Their departured spirits will never return. You attacked them and destroyed them, and they are long forgotten. Here was my answer. From the heart of God, it was time to transfer my attention from the powerless ghosts to the Holy One who knew the way out for me. It was time to put what Dave talked about last week into practice. He preached about faith's confession. And by learning to transfer my trust and reliance onto God and his word and the Holy Spirit, who teaches us all things, according to John 14, 26, I'm on the right path. I know the enemy is relentless and will never give up without a fight. But 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 reminds me that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I love Galatians 5, 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What Jesus did was enough. There is nothing left undone. He has completed the work. He said it himself on the cross. It is finished. Either he is Lord or he's not. He has all power and authority. He willingly gave it to us to rule and reign in in this life. Remember what Dave had us say last week? I am just like Jesus. That comes from 1 John 4, 17, which says, as he is, so are we in this world. We are not powerless to overcome things that have held us in bondage. We have everything we need in Jesus to overcome. Let's walk in the freedom he has bought and paid for with his precious blood. I'm going to ask, while I'm still finishing up, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, please. So how are we going to do this? Because there's some things that we can do as we, as we transfer our allegiance from that thing that has held us captive to the Lord. First, we're going to dig into the word of God and find out what God says about us and how he sees us in Christ. We're going to stop giving place in our thoughts and in our words to the thing we have already given way too much of ourselves to. We are going to put our mouths to work, speaking the word, thanking God that he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And we are going to start confessing the I am statements that are based in truth and not in the lies of the enemy, such as, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? We are going to confess that we are free whether we feel like it or not. Our feelings don't have a thing in the world to do with it. Just like we confess that we are healed in the face of symptoms, 
because that's what the word says. Amen? We are going to get so filled up with God that there is no room for anything the enemy brings to us. I love the, uh, this illustration when you put a cup with suds in the sink and you turn the spigot on and that water just pours into that cup until it's overflowing and eventually the suds go away and you've got clean water. That's how filled up we will be with God. And we're going to make, excuse me, God's priority for us our number one priority. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Everything we could ever need or want is found in him. Let's begin today to live in a manner worthy of him. Amen? I have asked the worship team to come up because one of the songs that we sang this morning perfectly, it's, it's a perfect prayer to go along with this. So I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able to, and we're going to sing this song, and I will grab a microphone. Lord, I come, I confess, here I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh. I want defense. 
your prayer this morning. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Oh,